We are con- continuing in our lessons in Christology. Um, like Pastor Antonio said this morning, this evening, earlier, how he hopes that the catechism questions are being of some use to you. I really hope that these lessons are of some use to you. Um, one 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 theologian said that uh, there's no greater science to study than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, um, which may or may or not be true because we have to remember that there is a doctrine of the Trinity as well. Um, that is glorious. That is uh, magnificent. That is majestic, as majestic as the person and work of Christ. But I hope these are of some use. Last time we were together, we concluded um, on the priesthood of Christ. And we did uh, maybe three or four lessons on the priesthood of Christ. Now we look at the third office of Christ, which is going to be his kingship. Uh, the kingship of Christ. Christ as king. Um, so again, we're probably going to do uh, three or four of these. And remember, saints, um, that... Uh, we're not doing. We're not. We're not studying the threefold office of Christ, um, just in isolation from the the uh, the work of Christ, specifically the ascension of Christ. So, how does Christ being a king relate to him ascending to the right hand of the Father? Where is the correlation? Where is the, um, um, how how do we make sense and fit? The kingship of Christ at the or in the ascension of Christ. Before we do that, though, we have to look at the office of Christ's kingship. Why must Jesus Christ be a king? Why must Jesus Christ be a king? Now, even even when I say something like that, um, it, it doesn't sound as proper as it should. Uh, because when I say, why must Christ be a king, it's already implying that Christ wasn't a king and then he became king. So I don't want you to think that Christ um, at any moment becomes a king. Now, there is a distinction that we will make regarding the kingship of Christ, uh, where he is a king uh, with respect to his humanity. Philippians 2 does teach that, that he has been exalted uh, with respect to his humanity, but Jesus Christ naturally is a king. Why? Because he is God. Jesus Christ is God. He is the eternal son. Therefore, he naturally is a king. Our salvation, though, for our salvation, Jesus Christ assumes the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. Why? Because Christ, or rather Adam, was a prophet, priest, and king. So you can think of it like this. Adam in the garden held a threefold office. He was a prophet, a priest, and a king. Christ on earth held a threefold office. Prophet, priest, and king. There's, There's a similarity there. Adam was a king, or as a king, was to rule God's people. But when he sinned, he allowed sin to rule over us. And that's... Essentially what Adam does, he does not fulfill his vocation as a king, uh, but rather he allows sin to rule over us. And before Christ saved us, before we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can all amen that sin ruled over us. And saints, in order for Jesus Christ to undo what historically has been called the triple curse, 
of sin that Adam brought upon mankind, Jesus had to hold to a threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. This is really just review, um, but I'm, I'm going to make a point soon. Herman Bobbing says he had to be a prophet to know and disclose the truth of God. So why was, a God, why was Christ a prophet? To know and disclose, to, to tell people the truth of God. He had to be a priest to devote himself to God and in our place and to offer himself up to God. And number three, Christ had to be a king to govern and protect us according to God's will. Christ had to be a king so he can overthrow sin and the dominion of Satan over our hearts. Christ overthrows one kingdom and he transports us into a new kingdom, the kingdom of light. So Jesus, as a king, leads our hearts and conquers our enemies. Now let's get into the study. What is the kingdom of God? When we, when we think about the kingship of Christ, we must begin with the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? When defining the kingdom of God, there's two ways, historically, that theologians spoke of the kingdom of God. Two ways in which theologians spoke of the kingdom of God. Now, there is only one kingdom, okay? There is only one kingdom of God. However, within that one kingdom, we make distinctions. And remember, or I don't know if you've heard this before, but when we do theology, we're always making distinctions. Theology is all about making distinctions, okay? So, the kingdom of God. Francis Turretin says this, one kingdom of Christ is natural or essential. The other kingdom of Christ is mediatorial and economical. Again, one kingdom of Christ is essential or natural, and the other kingdom of Christ is mediatorial or economical. Or we can say that there's God's kingdom of power and God's kingdom of grace. There's God's kingdom of power and God's kingdom of grace. So within the one kingdom of God, we distinguish there's God's kingdom of power and then his kingdom of grace. <clears throat> the kingdom of um, the kingdom of power is God's natural or essential rule. And God's kingdom of grace is his mediatorial or economical rule. So let's just break these two down quickly. God's kingdom of power. What is God's kingdom of power? What do we say that God sovereignly rules over all? We are speaking of God's kingdom of power. That's what we are speaking of. Many of us, I'm sure, have prayed that. Many of us amen that, affirm that. But God's kingdom of power or his sovereign rule over all is his kingdom of power. It is God's kingdom of power that refers to God's rule and dominion over all creatures. So God's kingdom of power is his rule and dominion over all creatures. This is God's universal kingdom. Because God is sovereign over all, he, by nature, not by right, not by succession, but by nature has absolute rule and supreme power over all. Because he is God, 
He has by nature supreme rule and power over all. Let's consider a few texts that speak to this. Psalm 47 verses 7 through 8. God is the king of all the earth. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Psalm 93 verses 1 and 2. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established and it and um, and it will not be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Jesus says in um, uh, Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus and Jesus came to came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And last one, Ephesians one, he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all the rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. So what we have in the Bible is clear that God reigns over all. That's essentially the point there. God reigns over all. And when we're speaking about God reigning over all, we are properly speaking about God's kingdom of power. That's essentially it. One practical note or practical uh, point for us uh, when we talk about God's kingdom of power is many people think that we live in a world where, imagine, imagine a lot of Christians believe this, that some parts of the world are ruled by Satan and some parts are ruled by God. There's a lot of Christians that believe that. Um, there's some Christians that believe, and many people believe that God rules, but at times evil comes in. And evil has its own rule and power and disrupts God's rule. There's some people who think uh, that uh, God is merely ruling over the world in general, but not over his enemies. Now, that is, enemies are free to do whatever they want. But saints, what we learn from God's kingdom of power is that there isn't one inch in the universe that God does not rule over. Again, there isn't one inch in this universe that God does not rule over. I am, I was so tempted at this point to just make a quick comment on, uh, the separation of church and state. And uh, how much the church is to allow uh, the state um, to uh, pass laws uh, by which the church are to abide by. Uh, but maybe we'll do that next week or, or after that. I'm not sure. But saints, when we consider uh, God's kingdom of power, specifically how it pertains to Jesus Christ, let's ask how does Christ then execute his office as a king with respect to the kingdom of power? So how does Christ execute his office as a king with respect to his universal or kingdom of power? The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 45, says this. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Answer, Christ executes the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself and giving them officers, laws, uh, by which they, by which he visibly governs them in bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience and correcting them for their sins, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, 
restraining and overcoming all of their enemies and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good. Now stop there. They're not speaking there about God's kingdom of power. They're actually speaking of God's kingdom of grace. Now look how they talk about God's kingdom of power. How does Christ execute as uh, the office of a king with respect to his kingdom of power? Check this out. And also in taking vengeance on the rest who do not, uh, who, who know not God and obey not the gospel. That is very scary, is it not? This is how Christ executes his office as a king to your unsaved family members and friends if they stay unsaved. What that last line is saying is this. Christ executes the office of a king in justly executing justice upon those who refuse to retain God in their knowledge and not believe and obey the gospel. And notice, friends, the language the catechism uses. It says, those who know not God. Here, the not knowing God is not in a sense that they never heard of God. But they do not retain God in their knowledge. There's a difference there. Not that they don't know God, but they don't retain God in their knowledge. This is what Romans 128 says. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God. You see, Paul is already presupposing that they know God, but they fail to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. Based off this verse, we can say the knowledge of God is in the mind, in the individual, in potential. Meaning it is there and it just needs to be brought out. How is it brought out? Through the things that are made. Through the things that are made, people should draw from these things, this one conclusion that there is a God. Because the things that are made testify that there is a God. In other words, saints, there is an innate knowledge of God in every single creature. In every single creature. Don't ever, don't ever let someone tell you that they do not know God. They just know God not. Man is made in the image of God. And there is an echo of what God is in every operation of one's intellect and will, such that their conscience testifies to what is good and true. Have you noticed that? That atheists, that uh, agnostics, uh, that those who do not believe that there is a God, that they testify to what is good and true. I mean, when all of those riots over George Floyd and all of them were, were going on, many of them um, were by atheists and those who did not profess God. And what we saw in those demonstrations is unbelievers testifying that they know God. Now, how are they doing so? Because they're saying what is right and what is wrong. 
based off of them not based off of them knowing what is right and wrong, clearly testifies that there is an echo of what God is like within them. This is what we read in Romans two fourteen for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law. Although not having the law are a law to themselves. In both of these cases, Romans 1 and Romans 2, the individual is described as one who knows not God because they actively remove any and all knowledge of God from their intellect and will. Thereby, they suppress the knowledge of God and they push it out. And it's these type of people that Christ execute his kingly office by taking vengeance on them. That is to say, those unbelievers receive that which is justly due to them for not acknowledging God and believing the gospel. Now you might say, that's a lot of theologizing from the Westminster Larger Catechism. Um, although I am not a strict biblicist in that sense, that we need um, the, 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 the exact words to, uh, to, to match up in, in the Bible. Um, Consider what we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. Actually, I'm going to read verses 7 through 9. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And here it is here. Inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ will take vengeance on those who do not know God and also who do not believe the gospel. And this is how Christ executes his office, or one of the ways, rather. Um, I mean, apart from giving nations um, leaders and things like that, there is going to be a swift and horrible destruction of the wicked. And this is part of Christ's kingly office. Let's now move to Christ's kingdom of power. In addition to God's kingdom of, uh, I'm sorry, kingdom of grace. In addition to God's kingdom of power, there's God's kingdom of grace. How do we define this? Well, Hamas Brockel, a reformed Dutch theologian, says this. He is not a king in heaven only, nor in a distant land, nor in the hearts of his elect only, but he is a king who dwells near and in his church. His own people, that gathered congregation, that visible multitude in the world who have accepted him to be their head and king, having sworn to be subject and obedient to him and to live according to his law. Saints, let's stop there. I really hope that you can say this is speaking of me. I mean, we have a king. He is our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have, uh, uh, have become subject. Like, like, like peasants become subject to their master. We have become subject to our great king. This kingdom of grace is not like the various kingdoms that have existed throughout the history of man. This kingdom is not a political kingdom. This kingdom is not interested in political agendas or policies. This kingdom of grace is not a future millennial kingdom. This might be something that uh, you may believe. Many Christians believe it. That this kingdom of God, this kingdom that pertains strictly to the church, is a kingdom that is in the future. 
This future thousand year reign of Christ. There are many Christians who believe that Jesus will return and reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem on a throne in an earthly political kingdom. But saints, we are not awaiting for a future thousand year reign of Christ. Why? Because Christ is reigning now. Christ with the saints in heaven is reigning over the church. Pastor Tony will break that down when he gets to Revelation. And what this means, saints, is this, that the kingdom of grace is not physical, but it's a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of grace is a spiritual kingdom. Francis Turretin, the great reform scholastic, says this, All that pertains to this kingdom is spiritual, not mundane and earthly. His throne is not earthly and visible, but divine and heavenly, at the right hand of God, where he should sit. His scepter is not material, but mystical. His subjects are not earthly and carnal men, but spiritual and heavenly, regenerated by the Spirit, born not of flesh, but of God, whose citizenship is in heaven. This is speaking of you, saints. This is speaking of all of us. By the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord Christ has established the kingdom of grace. And this kingdom of grace continues to be guarded and protected. We can all testify to that coming out of the whole COVID and Corona uh, uh, crisis. During that time, wasn't that a visible representation of Christ upholding, sustaining the kingdom of grace, which is the church? So we can say this kingdom of grace is the rule and reign of Christ over his church. As we have said, the kingdom of power is God's rule and reign overall. This is a specific, particular kingdom. Again, saints, not an earthly kingdom, not a political kingdom, but a heavenly and spiritual kingdom. Christ rules over us both inwardly and outwardly. And the Bible speaks of this kingdom of grace. Ephesians 1.22, which is honestly the only verse that you need. It says Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. Paul, I mean, uh, Psalm 110.3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb in the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the, under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey him. Saints, this kingdom that is everlasting is speaking specifically of the church. Speaking of that day, as Pastor Antonio said this morning so vividly and wonderfully, when at the consummation of all things, all the saints will be gathered up with Christ, and we will reign with Christ forever. What this means, saints, again, is the kingdom of grace is the church and the members of this kingdom um, are the saints on earth who by faith believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are ruled by Christ, uh, word and spirit. The lane synopsis summarizes the kingship of Christ well, just to give you a summary. In his office as a king, Christ as its only head governs the church. Now, let me stop there. The state is not 
head of the church. Whoever is in the office is not head over the church. I, any pastor, is not head over the church. There is no group of army. There is no uh, presbytery, although we're not Presbyterian. Uh, There is no man, no uh, authority, no institution, anyone that's head of the church other than Jesus Christ. Let me go on. Governs the church that was purchased with his own blood, and he powerfully guards her against every enemy within and without. By his guidance, he equips her with suitable weapons as she battles in the arena of this world. So that when, at a long last, she is made partaker of the victory he promised. She celebrates in heaven with him an eternal triumph over her defeated enemies and without stopping praises God for the victory obtained. You should, if you get a chance, read the latter half of the chapters of Malachi and it speaks of the victory that the people of God have as they are riding with Christ and they are trampling over Christ's enemies. You know, saints, Christ's enemies are our enemies. Christ's victory is our victory. Now, as we are coming to a close, let's consider the office of Christ's kingship more generally. Where do we see Christ as a king in scriptures? Where would we go, saints, if we were to prove the kingship of our Lord? There's many places we can go, but the first place we should go is in Genesis. Is in Genesis. Specifically, Genesis 3.15, that verse that we probably, Antonio and I quote, Every single Sunday, Genesis 3.15, the thesis statement of the Bible. Um, if, you don't, if you get this wrong, you get everything wrong. And I will make enemies of you and the woman and of your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, you might say, where in the world do we see Christ's kingship there? Well, saints, look at what God is ultimately saying. What is he saying to the serpent? He's saying that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And in doing so, what happens? The seed of the woman, which is Jesus Christ, gains victory. You see, the kingship of Christ and victory go hand in hand. Christ cannot be a king and lose. But Christ is a king that is superior to all other kings, and that is every battle he enters, he wins. And at the very early stages of Genesis, we see Christ's kingship, not explicitly, but implicitly implied that there is going to be one that comes and he's going to be victorious, no matter if you like it or not. Two verses, Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. I mean, I just gave you two verses here that speak of Jesus Christ before Jesus Christ, or the Eternal Son, came into flesh. The Old Testament is already speaking of this one who is a king. Next week, saints, we'll talk more about the Old Testament and kings and all that. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 21 which he brought about in Christ. And when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that's to come. So, saints, this is the kingship of Christ, a a brief summary of it. Um, How do we live in light of this? And I don't know, maybe this is happening more and more frequently to me, but I was reading another dead theologian. I said, I can't do any better than this. So I'm just going to give you five points of the excellency of King Jesus. And this is by the great reformed Dutch theologian, Wilhelmus Abrockel. He says this, even if there are individuals upon earth who are kings, the excellency of this king is nevertheless incomparable. He is greater than all. The first reason is this. All kings have nothing within themselves, nor much wherein they excel other men. This king, however, is glory and majesty personified. Hebrews 2, 9. He had glory with the father before the world was. John 17, 5 is sat down on the right hand of majesty on high. Hebrews 1, 3 and is crowned with glory and honor. Hebrews 2, 7. Number two, other kings govern, but a small country and have but a few subjects consisting of men and their subjection is only physical in nature. This king, however, has dominion also from sea to sea. And from river unto the ends of the earth, Psalm 20, uh, 72, 8. Other kings have but little power, number three, are fully occupied in protecting themselves and their subjects and are even conquered by others. But our king is the almighty, Revelation 1, 8. He is, uh, to him is given all power in heaven and in earth, Matthew 28, 18. And he is the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, Psalm 24, 8. Number four, other kings are often harsh and cruel toward their subjects. But this king, however, is a very gracious, gentle and faithful savior. He shall deliver the needy when they cry, the poor also and him that has no helper. He shall spare the poor and needy and say and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from violence and precious shall their blood and and precious shall their blood be in his sight. Psalm 72 and last one saints other kings die are disposed exiled cease to be kings. But this king, King Jesus, however, shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. Luke 1, chapter or verses 32 to 33. Saints, this is the kingdom of Christ. Next week, we'll consider the Old Testament kings and how Christ is greater than them. We'll look more at the portrait of a king and also consider how Christ is greater than all those kings that have come before. And eventually we'll get to how this pertains to the ascension. And maybe we'll do one on church and state, but this is just to whet your appetite on the kingship of Christ. And I hope that you were blessed uh, and you and you glory in the fact that you are part of a true dynasty. And there are many, there are many, um, 
uh, reigns uh, throughout the history of men. You can think of the Ming Dynasty and the Roman Empire and all these others, but, but you are part of the true and one dynasty that's going to last forever and forever. Let's pray.